We are in Exodus chapter 4, and we will read the whole chapter. Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your half hand this staff, and you in which you will shall do signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And the Zephariah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he left him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which, with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's open up with some prayer here. Uh, Father God, I uh, stand like Moses. I'm not eloquent. Father, um, very aware of my own deficiencies 
And God, you know them better than I do. So Father, I pray right now, as the God who made man's mouth, that you will be with mine. As the God who made man's heart, you will be with these people who are hearing it. Lord, help us to hear, Lord, and not just to hear, but to obey, and not just to obey, but to trust. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. God's people of all time have struggled with spiritual bipolarism. Now, that's not very comforting, is it? To hear that of all time, God's people have always been spiritually bipolar. Even the best of us have jumped from faith to fear, faith to fear, faith to fear. Sometimes we get to faith, and we jump right back into fear just moments later. And then at other times, we're fearful, and God brings us back to faith. And we have these regular rhythms in our lives that we are jumping back and forth, faith and fear, faith and fear. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham received the word from God that he would indeed have an offspring and that his offspring would become like, the, would become like a nation and that God would give blessing to all the earth through this nation. And yet by Genesis 16, Abraham has this flip, this slide into distrust, this slide into disbelief, and he sleeps with Hagar in an attempt to take for himself the promises of God. The same thing happens later in Genesis 26. God had just spoken his promise to be with Isaac, to protect him, to care for him, to keep his covenant promises. And yet it's just a few days later that Isaac can be found lying about his wife and trying to hide the fact that that his wife, that she is his wife so that Abimelech won't kill him. So you have from faith to fear again. Then we have Jacob, glorious, beautiful, stubborn, ignorant Jacob, whose jumps and leaps and slides from faith to fear is recorded in great detail throughout the entire last half of the book of Genesis. Now, we know that Abraham slid from faith to fear and slid back from fear to faith and that he had this spiritual bipolarism. We know that Isaac did as well. We know that Jacob did as well. And we find in Exodus 4 that Moses is no exception. Moses is a man who himself slides between that faith and fear, and sometimes straight out of fear into denial of God's word. Moses' shift is seen in Exodus 3 and 4 as the man chosen by God seems to swing in his response at God's word. Going from doubting to denying and outright disbelieving what God had said. Now, I think it's interesting. When we read Hebrews 11, it's the, the hall of faith. You know, you, you see these people in the Old Testament that are talked about by faith they did this. It's interesting that when you read about Moses in Hebrews 11, it says, it talks about his faith while he was in Egypt, before he left Egypt. And it talks about his faith when he left Egypt after the Exodus, but it doesn't say by faith he went to Egypt. There's a glaring omission there. He had faith not to call himself the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had faith to bring the people out of Exodus after God had accomplished it. But there's this gap in Moses' life that it doesn't say anything about him in faith going to Egypt. And I think that's because Exodus 3 and 4 show Moses not to be a man of faith, but a man who is denial, and in denial. A man who is disbelieving God's promises. Now, this is bizarre, because we all love Moses, right? How many of you watch the Ten Commandments? How many of you, when I say the word Moses, think of Charlton Heston? All right. All right. As, as good-looking as Charlton Heston was, I don't think Moses looked anything like that. What we're talking about when we talk about Moses, especially in these first few chapters, is not this giant of faith, not this man who has incredible belief in the promises of God. We actually see a sinful, broken, inadequate man who disbelieves and outright denies what God says. Now, this is good news for us, because aren't we pretty similar to that in many ways? God's, God's servants do not always have the greatest of beginnings, including Moses. Moses didn't start off in his life as a giant of faith. He started off as a denier, as an opponent of what God had said. Here's the lesson, though, that we see in Moses. Moses teaches us what not to do. 
in Exodus 4. He doesn't teach us what to do. He teaches us what not to do. When God calls us into his service, he calls us to not deny his word, his wisdom, or his promises. He calls us to obey him with trusting hearts. I hope, I hope to accomplish several things, but one of the things that I want to accomplish today is to challenge your view of serving God. Because serving God is not just a matter of doing things. There's all kinds of people in Scripture who did things. Serving God is a matter of obeying and trusting. To obey out of our trust. To obey because of our trust. To obey because of our faith. Not just to do, not just to obey, but to obey and trust. I think of King Saul who obeyed, had a sacrifice right before he went into battle. But yet his doing did not reveal his faith. It revealed his lack of faith. So serving God is not just a matter of doing things. Serving God is a matter of obeying God, doing the right things that he wants us to do while trusting him. This is so important for us right now in our life as a church. As a church, we feel like God's calling us to big things, to reach a community, to reach a city, to reach a world. And like Moses, all of us can sit and point at our inadequacies. We can deny that God can do anything. We can, can, can deny God's wisdom that he could never use. This little bitty old church on the hill. Or we can respond to God's call by obeying him and by trusting him all the way. I've had several of you, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the way that uh, this church reads their Bible because reading often comes with questions. And so somebody asked me once, why did I split Moses' conversation with God in half? Why not have a sermon on the whole conversation with God? Why split it right down the middle between Exodus 3 and Exodus 4? And here's why. When you get to Exodus 3, you see Moses asking questions. For example, in Exodus, 3, chapter, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, he asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? It's a question. Verse 13, he says, What shall I say then? That's in verse 13. But then you get into Exodus 4, and you see Moses stops asking questions. He's not doubting anymore. He's just outright denying. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. They will not listen to me. That's a statement. He says later in verse 10, I am not eloquent. Another statement, not a question. And so we see this shift, this slide from doubt to full-on denial and disobedience. I will not go. And so I feel like because of our own shift to do this, our own slide from doubt into disbelief, from doubt into denial, that it deserves a sermon all on its own. We're going to see Moses does three things in Exodus 4. Number one, he denies God's word in verses 1 through 9. In verses 10 through 17, he denies God's wisdom. And then in verses uh, 18 to 26, he denies God's promises. And then the end of the chapter, verses 27 through 31, we see that Moses' denial did nothing to hinder God's promises. They all happened exactly as God said they would, which is good news for us. So let's look at the first one, denial of God's word. God had already confirmed in chapter 3 verse 18 that the people would listen to him. He actually said, and they, the people, will listen to your voice, had just said it. And then less than three verses later, we hear Moses saying, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. It's not a question, it's a direct statement, a direct contradiction to what God had just said. One commentator even takes the, the Hebrew phraseology of this and translate it, translates it like this. But truth be told, they will not believe me or listen to me. So it's almost like God says his truth, they're going to listen to you. And Moses goes, no, I'm rejecting that. They're not going to listen to me. Outright denial of what God has said. Rejecting God's promise that the people would listen. Rejecting God's wisdom and knowing that what, how the people would, would respond. He outright denies God's word. 
And what's funny about this is it's symptomatic of a heart that lacks faith in God. Typically when we deny God's word, typically when we say no God, that's not true. This is the truth. And we we present our own version of the truth. It comes out a deep-seated disbelief in who God is. We see it over and over and over in the scripture. You see it again in Matthew 16, where Peter stands up just like Moses and outright denies something that Jesus said. Jesus begins to teach his people that he must go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again. He says it deliberately. This is what is going to happen. But then we see Peter in his outright denial in verse, uh, verses 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 22. It says that he rebuked Jesus, which essentially means that he bowed up to Jesus, stops Jesus. It, it, in, this, in this word rebuke, it's setting himself up in opposition to something that Jesus said. And here's what he says, far be it from you, Lord. <laughs> Peter's bold, brassy. Uh, this shall never happen to you. Can you imagine telling the Son of God incarnate, I know what you're saying, it's not going to happen. It happens again and again and again. And here's what Jesus responds to Peter's objection and to the one who's behind his objection. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. And then he goes on to say, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Moses and Peter have the same problem. They think in a man-centered rationale, not in a God-centered rationale. We do the exact same thing. Think about all the ways that we set our mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. How do we deny God's word and try to make our own version of the truth? I was trying to think through examples of this in my own life, and here's some, here's some things that I've heard, that I've seen, that I've made uh, excuses for myself. Um, I know, and I'm sure you know, that when God gave his great commission, he was telling all his people to go and make disciples, right? It's for everyone. Everyone's to go and make disciples. And yet, how often do the words come out of our mouth, he did not mean me? Or he meant them. Let them do it. How many times do we, do we know that God wants us to go out to present the gospel, and yet we sit on our recliners as our neighbors wait for us to bring the good news to them? How often do we sit back and watch as people move into the neighborhood, and yet we fail to move toward them? How many times do we know that there's a community that may be uncomfortable to try to get into because we've never been there. We don't know anyone there, and yet God wants us to break into that community. We know that the Lord wants us to go, and yet we say, not me, but them. Outright denial of God's word. When he said, you go, he meant you and not me. Think about some other ways. Um, that we deny God's word. We know what God's word says about marriage, and yet we insist on doing marriage in our own way. We know what God says about pride, saying things like pride comes before the fall and to humble ourselves before the Lord. And yet we think that anytime we read that, he's talking about those other prideful people, not about me. We know that God expects us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God, Micah 6.8. And yet we remain unconcerned and uncompassionate for oppressed, broken people. We know that God tells us not to forsake the gathering together of ourselves, especially as the day draws near, and yet we lament that we have to go to another church service. We lament that the the preacher keeps talking about joining a life group. We lament that uh, everyone keeps talking about fellowshipping. We hate fellowship. Don't you realize we can just get together uh, uh, on Sunday, and that should be good. Don't interrupt my football game time. My friends, we know what God wants of us. He's said it in His Word. He's given us His Word. And yet, we remain unmoved, thinking, surely He did not mean me. My friends, Moses teaches us what not to do. 
When God calls you to do something, don't deny it. Don't speak different and contradictory to what he said. Speak in agreement, accept it, believe it, and then obey it. God wants you to be hospitable. Great. How do you apply that? When someone new walks into the church, you move. Be hospitable. When you see a neighbor move in, you know that God has commanded you to speak. So what do you do? Don't stay silent. Go. Instead of trying to convince yourself why God, what God said does not apply to you, obey it and trust it. God would, have, uh, God would have been fully righteous at this moment. I think we'd all agree on this, to zap Moses out of existence. Why have a man who makes outright denials of what he says? Why have a man who says the contradictory of... I mean, we all know people like this, right? We say A and they say B, right? We say B and they say A. Why, why put up with someone like that? What would be the point in doing that? But yet... Instead of zapping him out, burning, I mean, the fire's already there. Instead of burning him up, though, God gives grace. And he gives Moses these signs. He gives him three signs. Now, as I'm reading about this, I'm looking at these signs. Moses' fear of the people rejecting him is completely unfounded. God had already said they would. And we find out later when he gets there, he doesn't need to convince them. They believe. They don't ever ask, who sent you? They don't ever ask, how can we know that God sent you? They don't ask those questions that Moses thinks they will. So it's completely unfounded. So in light of that, knowing that God has already said they would, and knowing that God will make sure to that they listen, we have to ask, what's the point of the signs? Yes, they're for the people of Israel, but I think underneath the surface, they're for Moses. So let's look at each one of these signs real briefly. The first sign is for Moses to take up a staff and to throw it on the ground. We all know what happens, right? He throws the staff on the ground, and what does it turn into? Serpent, right? And you have this little detail. Moses sees it, and he ran from it. How many of you would have been doing that? Stick just turned into a snake. I'm out of here, right? We know Kyle would be at the front door by now, okay? So, so God tells him to throw down the stick. It turns into a snake. He runs from it, and then the Lord bizarre as anything, tells him to pick it up by the tail. Now, I had to call John Banks for confirmation about this. I don't typically go around picking up snakes. I have picked up snakes before. Um, I don't quite recommend it, and I don't like it. Um, But most of us who have ever handled snakes, where's the safest place to grab the snake? Behind the head. Why? It can't bite you behind the head. So why in the world would this omniscient, all-knowing God and all of his wisdom tell Moses in detail, pick it up by the tail? Wait a second, God. (laughs) I know you don't have Discovery Channel or National Geographic's on, um, but you should know that Steve Irwin never picked up a snake by the tail. (laughs) He said, don't do it. It'll turn around and bite you. So just, (laughs) just correcting you. So we've got to ask, if every detail in Scripture matters, why did God tell him in detail, pick it up by the tail? Either one, God's foolish, doesn't know anything about the snakes that he made, or he's beckoning Moses to have faith. How does Moses know that when he goes to Egypt, the serpent Pharaoh will not strike and kill him? The same way that he knows that he can pick up that snake by the tail and it won't bite him. Because God is God. Is it called a trust and obedience? Is it called a trust? It's a little object lesson. You see that? For Moses. This is more for Moses than it is for the people. God's just graciously giving Moses an out saying, this is so that the people will believe you, Moses. (laughs) God's teaching Moses as he goes through it. And then you have the second sign. He tells Moses to put his hand in in his cloak, right? And he pulls it out and he becomes leprous. Or it becomes like snow. It's just the skin disease. It's deadly. It's fatal. It, it crawls around on, this person, uh, on the person and it is a, a life ruiner, right? So Moses is seeing, I can just imagine his face pulling it out. I put it, it's like a, ma- a bad magic trick gone wrong, right? Puts it in his hand, pulls it out, and it's leprous. And then God says, put your hand back in, and he pulls it out, and it's healed. What is God showing? What's the object lesson here? I think he's showing what he says explicitly later in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. Here's what he says. See that I, even I, am he. 
and there is no other God beside me. I kill and I make alive. Listen to this. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. I think Moses is saying, God told me to put my hand in the cloak and he made it leprous. God told me to put my hand in the cloak and he made it whole. What kind of object lesson is Moses learning there? It's by God's word that people die or are raised again. It's by God's word that people are leprous or healed. God is sovereign. Now go. If God says you will not die in Egypt, it's as good as gold. He's the one that kills and makes alive. He's the one that wounds and heals. He is absolutely sovereign. My friends, I, I, uh, we did a missions month, and Brandon was reading John G. Patton, and um, I remember back when I read John G. Patton and all these fears that his people had, his church had, that he'd be eaten by cannibals. And one guy walking up to him and goes, don't you realize you're soon to be eaten by cannibals? And the guy said, you're probably soon to be eaten by worms. So we're both, we're both good. I, I mean, that's a paraphrase of what he said. But basically what he's saying there is he's telling them to realize God is who he is. God's sovereign over life and death. It is better to die by God's sovereignty in obedience than to die by God's sovereignty in disobedience. Do you realize that? Go, die, or live, or whatever. God is sovereign. Now obey. And then he gives Moses a third sign. The third sign doesn't happen here at this mountain. The third sign requires Moses to trust that it will happen. He says, when you get there, if they don't believe these first two signs, I want you to do this third sign. I want you to take water out of the Nile. Where's the Nile? It's in Egypt, not at Mount Horeb. So God's basically saying, this next one, you're going to have to wait till you get there, Moses. And you're going to pour out water on the ground that's going to turn to blood. The point is simple. Sign after sign after sign, God proved his sovereignty, showing that he alone is God and that he had chosen Moses and he would indeed use Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Now we would hope that's the end of Moses' denial, right? But it's not. It's just the beginning of his denial. Next, we see Moses' denial of God's wisdom. He says in verse 10, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech. God had already said, I'm going to send you, and you're going to go and bring my message to Pharaoh, and you're going to deliver my people. And now Moses is basically saying, do you realize how stupid that is, God? Do you not know that I don't speak well? The, the actual Hebrew leads on to, this is a man with a speech impediment. This gives me hope. I have a slight lisp in my S's, and so uh, I don't know if you know this. When I was five or six, I had a massive speech impediment. Uh, it took actual like speech therapy to get through. Um, and I can just remember telling my fourth-year-old self that I was going to preach. <laughs> I can't even say my wells and my R's, Lord. <laughs> But don't tell God, don't question God's wisdom. He's basically saying, God, I know you know all things. (laughs) You've proven your sovereignty. But don't you know that I can't speak well? Don't you know that I'm a stuttering, fumbling, confusing speaker? (laughs) I love God's response. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. When you wrangle with God about wisdom and who is wise, he points back to the fact that he made all things. He knows it way better than you. He does the same thing with Job, doesn't he? Job begins to question his wisdom and why would you allow me to suffer and what have I done and I don't understand. Come down so that I may debate with you, God. And what does God do? He comes down and he silences debate, saying, where were you when I taught the sun where to set? Where were you when I told the oceans to go here and no further? And he does the same thing here with Moses. Who made man's mouth? 
Moses is overwhelmed, obviously, and finally just gives up and says, will you just please send someone else? Just please send someone else. My friends, we must see ourselves in Moses' denial. God wants me to share the gospel? Me? Doesn't he know I shake when I say hello to people? God wants me to tell my neighbor about the good news of Jesus? Doesn't he know that my neighbor sees all my flaws? My neighbor's seen me in my boxer shorts. He wants me to go? The Lord wants me to be a disciple maker? Doesn't he know I've not been to seminary? And little by little, we question God's wisdom. Not me, Lord. Not me. I know you told me to, but you don't realize how inadequate I am. (laughs) And I can see the Lord chuckling and saying, no, you don't realize how inadequate you are. I know just fine how inadequate you are. (laughs) Praise God, he works like this, right? He works like this. He doesn't uh, send a strong Charlton Heston eloquent speaker to confront Pharaoh. He he sends a broken 80-year-old stuttering shepherd to humble Egypt. And in this, God uses the weak and the foolish instruments to humble the strong and the wise. Doesn't he say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27? God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise, the strong. God uses the foolish things in the world to confound the strong. Why? For the foolishness of God, to show all this, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. To show that the weakness of God is stronger than men. Can you imagine winning a chess game with a pawn? God uses pawns to show his wisdom and his strength. And he humbles the king. That's our God. And yet we question his wisdom time and time again. We say just like Moses, oh Lord, please send me. Uh, please send someone else. <laughs> we say the opposite of what Isaiah said. Oh Lord, here I am. Send them. <laughs> and yet Moses shows us what not to do. I think it's interesting. You see in the next phrase, says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Did you know that in all the Bible, this is the first instance that God's anger is said to be kindled against an individual? Our Moses? Our hero of the faith? Our giant? The guy that we, like, watch on TV every year? Was the first man ever... That it is said that God's anger was kindled against him as an individual. And why? Because Moses in all of his arrogance, this isn't humility. Don't think this is humility. This is pride. Moses in his arrogance critiques God's wisdom and God gets mad. Two things make God mad. Denying his word. To say that he didn't say something. That's why the serpent gets judged in Genesis 3. God did not. God, God uh, knows that you will not surely die. It's outright denial of God's word. And doubting and denying God's wisdom. Doubt God's word. Deny God's word. Deny God's wisdom and you will get the dissatisfaction and displeasure of God. God wants you to trust him and to obey him. And again, I'm thinking... God, burn him up. He just called you stupid. I'm glad he didn't because I would have been burned up a long time ago if God did that. Instead, God being a long-suffering and patient God already anticipates that Moses is going to do this. Because there's, there's a little interesting thing. If you look up where Mount Horeb, where Mount Sinai was supposed to be, and you look at how far it is from Egypt, you can't get there just overnight, right? There's quite a distance there. And yet, Moses meets Aaron where? At Mount Horeb. As he's walking down from his conversation with God. Before he leaves the region of the mountain of God. That's what it says later. Before he even leaves the region of the mountain of God. Aaron's met him there. Which means that God anticipated this. Showed up to Aaron before the conversation with Moses. Said, get going Aaron. I'm going to go deal with Moses. 
Moses, Aaron takes off walking. God, uh, Moses and God wrangle on this mountain, denying God's wisdom. And as Moses is coming down, Aaron is there. Or as Moses is packing up or whatever, he's not left the region. And there's Aaron. It's amazing. How gracious and kind, long-suffering and loving and gentle and patient our God is. He not only deals with our weaknesses and confronts our weaknesses and confronts our denials, he anticipates them. (laughs) Why would he have even bothered with Moses knowing that Moses was going to do that? What a gracious God we have. He tells Moses that he's sending Aaron. Aaron will greet him. He'll be glad to see him. um, And that he's going to teach them both what to do and what to say. And then before he leaves, he tells Moses, hey, by the way, don't forget your stick. Take, take your stick with you. Now, this is an object lesson in and of itself. Moses' staff keeps showing up in Exodus. It splits the Red Sea. It's the staff that Moses holds up. And when his arms go down, the people lose. And when his arms go up with the staff in it, the, the people win. What is it trying to show? Again, another object lesson. God's sovereignty And his authoritative power is not going to be proven through a sledgehammer. It's not going to be proven through a machine gun, through a bulldozer, through a wrecking ball. It's going to be proven through a stick. God is going to proclaim and display his almighty sovereignty with a shepherd's twig that he broke off the branch. Now, I I have a staff you know, and yes, it's just, I mean, it, it, they're, they're nice, strong little things that hurt if I whacked you with it. But at the same time, that's not what I would use if I wanted to display the almighty power of God. He says, take the staff, and through that staff you'll do my signs and my wonders. He's basically saying, Moses, if I can use that stick to do my wonders, I can use a stuttering fool like you. What an amazing God that we have. Third and finally. Verse uh, 18 carries on the narrative as it shows God, uh, Moses' denial of God's promises. We t- my friends, read the Bible slowly and then read it again and read it again and read it again. I have read this portion of scripture, scripture for years and never have I seen what I'm seeing now as I read slowly through it. And here's what it says. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. I passed over that in the past. Oh, okay, great. Good job, Moses. Finally came around. He's not come around. What does he say to his father-in-law? Not, let me go so I can go set my brothers free. What does he say? Let me go to see if they're still alive. Didn't God just tell him they were still alive? Don't the promises of God, the covenant with Abraham, assume that God will never let his people be destroyed? And Moses is like, uh, Jethro, Uh, So me and God had a meeting on the mountain. I'm not sure what he's doing really, but I'm going to go see if what he said is actually true. That's the Moses that we have. To see if his people are still alive. If he fully believed what God has said, it wouldn't be, let me go back to my brothers and see whether they're still alive. That's not what God sent him to do. God sent him to rescue his living brothers. Not to check on, this is not a wellness check. This is a rescue mission. Nonetheless, Jethro says, okay, that's fine. Go, Bless, peace be with you. And Moses goes back. And then right before Moses leaves again, we see the gracious hand of God. God's overheard, obviously. God knows this conversation that happened with Jethro. And God still graciously reaches out to Moses and he says, Go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. What a kind God that we have. Chipping away at fear. Now, verses 21 through 23, God is relentless in pressing for obedience. He goes, he says in verse 21, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. Literally, he's saying, obey 
me. Do what I said. And then he's, and in expressing his sovereignty, he goes on to say in verse 21, but I will harden his heart. My friends, we're going we're gonna to wrangle with some very difficult theology in Exodus. We have a God who, if you think of Exodus as merely where Pharaoh hardened his heart, these are one of those texts where God says before Pharaoh's even in the picture, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's a hard theology, and we're going to get there at some point. We're not dealing with it today. Um, I need to go on vacation first. <laughs> but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is the same God who says later to Jeremiah, I will stop up their ears so they will not listen to you. Such a strange God that we have. And then he goes on and he says, Moses, if you want to know where all this is leading, I'm telling him to let go of my firstborn son or I'm going to kill his. Have fun. Right? That's, where he's te- that's what he tells Moses. He actually tells him. He bypasses the nine plagues and goes straight to the Passover. By the way, Moses, this is what's going to happen. Now, if I were Moses, I'd be watching for that. This, this should be comforting. God's sovereign. He's claiming victory before Moses is even in Egypt. God doesn't wait to see the outcome. God doesn't make boast of what he hopes will happen. God knows and God claims victory before Moses even steps foot on Egyptian soil. Now, again, we would hope that would encourage Moses. But Scripture's not done showing Moses' denial of God's promises. Verses 24 through 26 is such a random text. God calls Moses, and then on the way, God tries to kill Moses. Now, um, my wife is a great math teacher, but I'm fairly confident this is a word problem that she can't figure out. God, at one point, says, Moses, go. Okay, I have, if Moses has one staff, one wife, and two children, and God tells him to go to the one Pharaoh, and then God tries to kill Pharaoh, what's left? Or God tries to kill Moses, what's left? I'm, I'm, I mean, it boggles our mind, doesn't it? What is God doing here? And then some strange event where Zipporah is told to cut off the, where Zipporah cuts off the foreskin of her son. I'm not going to go into detail on that. And touches his foot, and God relents. God pulls back and lets Moses live. Here's what you have to ask. Clearly, circumcision is in the midst of all this. That's what God, God tries to kill Moses, and yet that's what stays God's wrath, is when his son is circumcised. Did Moses at this point in time know that he was a Hebrew? Hebrews 11 says that he did. Hebrews 11 said that he knew when he stopped calling himself the son of Pharaoh's daughter all the way back in Egypt, and he went out to go look at his people. So he knew he was Hebrew, the Hebrews knew they were supposed to do what? Circumcise their kids. And what was the point of circumcision? You go back to Genesis 17. You find Abraham talking with God. And God tells him to circumcise all of their baby boys. Why? Because it is a sign of God's promise. Right? God's promise to do what? To give an offspring who will bring blessing to the whole earth. Well, Moses is this radical Hebrew who just outright says, Ah, yeah, that's not important. He's had two sons and still has not circumcised them. What is this? It's disobedience, but disobedience sourced in what? In a lack of faith of God's promises. Every time fathers circumcised their son, it was an, it was an act of faith that God would do as he said that he would do, that he would give an offspring. That's why circumcision existed in the Old Testament, was so that every time they performed it, it was another rehearsal. We believe that God will do what he said he would do. Marks us out as his people, marks us out as the people of blessing, and ultimately points to the offspring who's going to bring restoration. And Moses hasn't done it. I think it shows, number one, no one is beyond obeying God. Number two, no one is beyond believing God. And number three, God's not just satisfied with Moses going. He wants Moses to go while believing in the promises of God. Do you see that? He would rather have a dead Moses in the desert 
than to have an unbelieving, untrusting, unfaithful Moses go and preach his message. So he's breaking Moses down. God has, uh, Moses has denied God's word. He has denied God's wisdom. And in his words to Jethro and in the lack of circumcision in his son, he is denying God's covenant promises. And God breaks him down, bringing him to faith and trust over and over and over again. And finally, this this chapter ends by everything happening just as God said. In verse 27, Moses met Aaron at the mountain of God at Horeb, and Aaron was glad to see him just as God promised. In verses 29 through 30, Moses and Aaron gathered the elders and showed them the signs just as God had commanded. In verse 31, the people believed just as God foretold they would. And when they heard that God had visited the people of Israel, just as he had promised in days of old, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Do you know what this tells us? That God's people may deny his word, his wisdom, his promises. All people might deny God's word, God's wisdom, God's promises. And guess what? God's word happens. He is the wise, all-knowing God still. And what he promises happens. Our denial does not negate God's promises. My friends, the train is moving. And it will reach its destination. We're not asking you to get on the train so that it will move. We're asking you to jump on an already moving train. Because it's going to get there whether you get on or not. God's promises will happen whether you obey or distrust or not. God will do what he said he will do. It is not contingent on you believing. But here's the thing. If we are going to be faithful people of God... We will obey and trust his word, his wisdom, and his promises. Here's the thing. We get to the New Testament, and we see the same thing again. Israel denied that Jesus was the Son of God. His disciples denied that he would suffer and die. Peter denied even knowing him. The Pharisees denied that he would be risen again. The world still denies that he's enthroned and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And yet, guess what? Jesus will still have his day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Deny as we might, God will be victorious. I praise God for Exodus 4. My friends, how are you denying God's word? There's some of you in here that know what God says and you're just kind of still kind of waiting to do it and obey it. You're not so in love with God's word, you're still wanting to try your own version of truth. Maybe there's some of us in here that are denying God's wisdom. We think we know better. Either we think of ourselves as more than what God thinks of us or we think of ourselves as less than what God thinks of us. But either way, we question his wisdom and what, and what he wants to do with us. We question his wisdom and what he wants us to do for him. He, we question his wisdom and calling us out and giving us marching orders and telling us to get out of the four walls of the church and go into homes and go into neighborhoods and go into schools and workplaces and the nation's. And yet one day we'll be standing there and the nations will be reached. And if God wants our neighbor to be saved, they'll be there whether we opened our mouth or not. But how sad and tragic it would be if we come to the realize that God kept his promise in spite of us, but not because of us. My friends, we should want to be used. We should want to be faithful. Don't question God and what he can do question why in the world we deny the way that we do. Now therefore go is what God says. Who made man's mouth? Who made people smart or dumb or seeing or blind or handicapped or healthy? 
who gives people fibromyalgia and cancer and wealth and poverty, who gives you every square foot of your home, who gives you every cent in your bank account, who gives you every ability and every gift and every skill that you have. Is it not the Lord? Now therefore go. That's what God says to his people in Exodus 4. Now there's some that Exodus 4 says, now therefore come. Because there are some in here who have yet to believe God's word about Jesus Christ, that Jesus actually died for their sins, was buried and rose again. There's some in here that deny God's wisdom. Could God really save me through a suffering and crucified Savior? Why in the world would God work like that? There's some of us in here who deny God's promises, who think, surely God can't save me. He must not know what I've done. My friends, God speaks the same to you. Who made you? Who saves you? Now, therefore, come. Elders, if you'll go to the back. My friends, Sometimes we send the elders to the back and no one comes. Sometimes we send the elders to the back and one or two come. My friends, if no one comes, we'll keep sending elders to the back. Because I believe that someday the message will get out that we want to pray for you. (laughs) Wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, whatever denials you might be making, whatever struggles you might be having, whatever disbeliefs and doubts that you may be going through, we want to be men who preach the gospel well to you. And so, friends, don't neglect this time. You may be a healthy believer who still denies God's word, God's wisdom, and God's promises and need prayer. You may be a believer who's suffering and just it's been a hard week and your bones have ached and your joints are hurting and you're, you're, you're inflamed and riddled with, with uh, arthritis and you just hurt and you just need prayer to remember that God will keep his promise to give you a new body, right? I mean, some of us have just are struggling under the, the knowledge that we are insufficient, inadequate, and our marriages might fail. There are some of us who know that we have wanted to just end it all at some point in time. People all over the world right now ending it because they can't see any hope. They deny God's word, God's wisdom, and God's presence and power and promise. And my friends, we want to pray for you. And ultimately, if you're here and you just do not know God, let's fix that now. So as we worship and as we pray, I pray that you'll be moved to come to the back and pray with us. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace, for your long-suffering, for your patience. God, we thank you for your word, for your wisdom, and for your promises. Now, Lord, help us to obey and to trust. God, that we will not do one or the other, but that we will do both. Because one is dependent on the other. We must obey and trust. We must trust and obey. And, Father, we can do nothing else to be faithful. God, we love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.